So, Isaiah 9. I'm just going to read to you um, the first seven verses of Isaiah 9. Most of you will find them very familiar, no doubt. Um, they are well-known verses. We're only going to be covering the first three today. We will actually, we'll, we'll, we'll cover over four to seven, but very, very much of a, a skim over. Um, and we'll come back to that next time. But uh, I'll read through the first seven verses. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. In the latter time, he has made glorious by the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they, devoid, divide, uh, when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his, uh, his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we come to your word again tonight, Lord, that you would bless our time, that you would enable us to see and to understand your word, and Lord, that we would be richly blessed by it. Pray, Lord, that you would speak through your spirit, and you would enable us to see your son. And seeing him, Lord, we might ever be conformed more into his image. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we finished last time chapter 8. Chapter 8 ended with the um, binding up of the testimony. In chapter 8, there was the warning of the uh, attack of the Assyrians. If you remember, when we began this whole section way back in chapter 7, it was an attack from Assyria and Israel from the north that was the problem. And they were wanting to get rid of Ahaz and uh, get rid of the entire house of David. And though Ahaz was a, was a particularly nasty and wicked king, um, the house of David had to stand because of God's covenant with David and the Davidic house. And so um, there was uh, going to be no threat from uh, Israel and Syria. But Israel and Syria were attacking Judah because they needed Judah to join with them to defend them all against Assyria. Not Syria, but Assyria. And Assyria was further north, and Assyria was the, um, the superpower, as it were, of the day. It was the superpower of the day. And the reason that Ahaz didn't want to join forces with Syria and Israel was because his plan was to join forces with Assyria. 
And in, as we've gone through chapter 7 and in chapter 8, Isaiah has warned him because rather than trusting in God, rather than trusting in Yahweh, Ahaz is trusting in the might of the Assyrians. Ahaz must have thought he hit the jackpot. When he got a handshake with Assyria and figured, okay, we've got to deal with Assyria now, that he just saw the power of Assyria, the might of Assyria, and he thought, we're good. And when Syria and Israel attacked Judah to try and turn over Ahaz, turn over the house of David, and get a new ruler in so they could attack, they could defend themselves against Assyria, that was Ahaz's opportunity to repent. It was his opportunity to trust in Yahweh. But no, he continued to trust in Assyria. And so in chapter 8, the judgment comes, and the judgment is that, um, that Assyria will come and will flood uh, Judah, and the very nation in whom they trusted would be the nation that uh, would, would attack them. And so when we come to the end of chapter 8, as we did last time, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples, um, there is this uh, guarantee of the word that will come. And the name of uh, Isaiah and his children are going to be signs. Remember the, the sign of the second son, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. That name means uh, speed the spoil and hasten the prey. And uh, it means that Assyria will come and attack them soon enough. And the word of God has been spoken and should be trusted. And in contrast, in verse 19, we saw about the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. We spoke at length about those who trust in other revelations other than scripture. And the end of it all, as we come to, came to the end of chapter 8... Verse 21, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. One thing I forgot to note last time in verse 21 was, of course, the reference to food again. They will be hungry. And that's a, a, a play with words that Isaiah has been doing right the way since chapter one. I keep referencing that, that those who... Uh, those who uh, Trust in the Lord will be fed, and those who seek their food elsewhere will be consumed by their enemies. And so these people will be consumed by their enemies, and they will be hungry as well. And they will be blaming God, and they will be blaming their king. But look at verse 22. When they look up and get no reply from God, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Notice the repetition there of darkness. Chapter 8 ends with a double repetition of darkness, which mirrors the end of chapter 5. You remember the end of chapter 5? Chapter 5 was the end of the sort of the foundation, the introduction leading up to the call of Isaiah, the prologue, if you like. And that ended in chapter 5 and verse 30. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by the clouds. So chapter 5 ends with darkness and darkened. It ends with them looking at the land. Chapter 8 equally ends with them looking to the earth and there being darkness, thick darkness. And, you know, it's funny, the, um, the Hebrew Bible 
has its chapter break for the end of chapter 8, actually with chapter 9 and verse 1. That's included in chapter 8. But I actually, I used to think that was right, but this week I've changed my mind. I think because of the parallels with chapter 5, chapter 8, that is the end of the section. The section ends with this judgment. Ahaz has trusted in Assyria. Assyria is going to come in and bring judgment, and um, there's going to be much suffering and and much... um, loss because of this attack and there will be this darkness and this gloom of anguish. Now when we then hit chapter 9 and verse 1 it starts with the word but. But is as important a word as the word therefore. We always talk about therefore and how it links to the previous section. Well but does too. It's a a contrast with the previous section. And if you notice at the end of chapter uh, eight, we have the mention the gloom of anguish. Now look at chapter nine, verse one. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. So in chapter eight, the judgment of Assyria is the gloom of anguish. And now for those who had that, glo- um, there will be no more gloom for those who are in anguish. So we have this immediate turnaround. So what's going to happen is Assyria is going to come in and Assyria will come in and bring destruction. There will be this darkness, this gloom of anguish, but there will be a turnaround. Those who were in anguish will no longer be in gloom. And because the analogy of darkness was used, uh, he is going to then talk about there being light as we go forwards. Now, as the verse continues, in the former time, he has brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious by the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Okay, it's important we understand this. This is the kind of verse you're doing your Bible reading plan and you literally read it out loud and move on to the next verse and you're glad it's gone because it's not immediately clear to you. But this is important that we understand what's going on here, okay? We spoke, I think this morning, for those who are in the morning service, we spoke about this parallelism that often happens in the Hebrew Scriptures. And we see something similar here. There is a former time at the first section and then there is a latter time. In the former time, there is contempt, and in the latter time, there is glory. So former time contempt, latter time glory. That's the contrast. But the parallels are where it's happening. In the former time, it makes reference to the land of Zebulun and the the land of Naphtali, which I used to pronounce wrong until my wife corrected me this week. Thank you for that, Jen. Um, These are two of the tribes and the land was apportioned to them. And the land that was given to Zebulun and Naphtali was the land that was north of what was known as Samaria in the time of Jesus. So you have the southern kingdom of Judah down low. There's Jerusalem at the top of the southern kingdom of Judah. Above Jerusalem is Samaria. And then you go above Samaria and you have a further north before you get up into Syria and Assyria and all of this. Up there at the top of the land of Israel, you have the land that was given to the tribes of Zebulun and Natali. Now, when you then get to the second section, in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, and Galilee of the nations. And here we have a reference to essentially, I think, predominantly the same area. 
Um, the way of the sea was a road that ran from Egypt in the south all the way up uh, to Damascus, but on the way up it went alongside the Sea of Galilee, hence the way of the sea, referencing to a degree the Sea of Galilee. Uh, beyond the Jordan is on the east bank of the Jordan, which is just below that, and Galilee of the Gentiles is just above that. Galilee of the Gentiles, literally Galilee of the nations, is Galilee we're familiar with, aren't we, from the time of Jesus, okay? So Galilee of the Gentiles, there's some debate as to why a nations, by the way, means Gentiles. Gentiles just means different nations that aren't the Jewish nation. So the word nation and the word Gentiles is essentially the same thing, non-Jewish nations, okay? Now, Galilee of the Gentiles, the nations, why does it mean that? Some will say because there was a mixed population there, which indeed there was. We saw Jesus ministering to Gentile populations near Galilee. But also, I think, others talk about how um, Galilee is the upper border of Israel, so whenever Gentiles came to Israel, where did they come through? They came through Galilee. They came through Galilee if they came in peace to trade. And they came through Galilee if they came as invaders. And so all of this land that's being referenced is essentially the region that Jesus predominantly ministered in and his time uh, on earth, in, the, in, the, in his ministry. It is the, the, around the Sea of Galilee, uh, Capernaum, Cana, this kind of area. And, and I know that for many of you, the geography of the Bible is just is something you just don't know at all. So I want to keep it very, very simple just so we have a picture in our mind. If you think of Israel being in three vertical chunks, at the bottom we have Judah with Jerusalem the capital. In the middle we have Samaria which was a land that at the time of Christ was, was, was loathed because it was a place where the Samaritans had, had intermarried and had, had essentially watered down the Jewish faith. And then above Samaria, there was this northern region of Israel that we think of as Galilee, which is covered by these terms here. Okay, That's why, if you remember, when Jesus was going to... Uh, was going from uh, Galilee to, to Jerusalem. Was he going from Jerusalem to Galilee? He went through Samaria in John chapter 4, which was unusual because the Jews would always go around it. And when you think you've got one there, one there, and one there, that's quite a trek to go around it. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. But they weren't particularly fond of those from Galilee either, as we'll see. And so it is said here in this verse, that in the former times, there was contempt for these nations. Now, I think there certainly is contempt in the way that the Jews thought of it, but I'm not sure that's what's being referenced here. It was a place of contempt because it just got downtrodden. We've already seen in Isaiah in the last couple of chapters that when the nations are coming down and attacking, they destroy all of these lands and they conquer all of these cities and they get to Jerusalem and it's... Breaks on, they can't quite do Jerusalem. And so the house of David survives another day. But everything above that is getting destroyed. So Galilee, when the nations come in, whether it's Assyria, whether it's the Babylonians, Galilee just gets trounced. It is a place of contempt in that regard. It is a place that is under much darkness. And remember, darkness here in the context of chapter 8, the darkness is the invading armies. That's the darkness. So 
here, there is this darkness of judgment and there is this, this uh, contempt as a result of that that comes to this land. But in the latter times, in contrast, there is going to be glory. Glory being synonymous with light. When you see the glory of the Lord, you don't need a, a, you know, to have the lights on as well, do you? The glory of the Lord shone around. So glory here is, is a contrast to the darkness. And so there's the gloom and the anguish is going to go. The darkness is going to go and there's going to be light and glory. But there is a specific pointing to this northern region. Okay? Very important we understand that. Okay, the reason that Isaiah points to it, as I'm saying, is because these armies invade from the north, they come through this region. And even in the time that he was writing, very recently in 2 Kings chapter 15 and verse 29, there was an invasion. Um, and there's others historically that happened as well. And it was something that was quite, um, quite regular. So it was a place that was that was in contempt in so much as it, was, it suffered a lot. It had, a, had, it had drawn the short straw, so to speak. And so then in verse 2, and you'll see now here that, and this is probably why there's a chapter break here in the Hebrew, most versions, it shifts across to show you that it's coming into a, a poetic form. You'll have this little indent in much of the, um, many of your Bibles. And here is the word to these people. Here is the word to these, this region. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Now, I want you to understand this, okay? Now, we're going to go there in a minute. Some of you are familiar with this from the New Testament and from Christmas readings and what have you. But look at it in context first, Okay? In the context. The darkness is the invading armies. So the people who are there have walked in darkness. They've, they've been people who have lived in darkness. And now they're seeing light. That has to, in context, mean an end of warfare. It has to. Because that's the context. And remember, we don't take New Testament passages understand what we think they mean, and then go back into the Old Testament and interpret the Old Testament in light of the New. What we do is we look at the Old Testament in context, which shows us then how the New Testament is using that Old Testament in context. So here, it means an end of warfare, an end of them being oppressed by invading armies, by Gentile nations. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation... Okay, now notice the contrast. It was, um, it was in verse, uh, where are we? In verse 1, Galilee of the nations, Gentiles, plural, nations. Now you have multiplied the nation, singular. You see the difference? There, there are these Gentile nations who have been trampling over Galilee, but now there is the multiplication, the, the glorification, if you like, of the nation. You have increased its joy. If you've got a King James right now, it's going to say something very different. That's a bit of a mistranslation. But what, it, what the text is actually saying is that the joy has been increased. And that joy is described here in the second half of verse 3. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. 
I'll give you a couple of examples of this just for completion. In Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6, you'll be familiar with this. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaths with him. In other words, you sow with tears, and ultimately there will be joy in the end. To take a previous psalm, um, I'm trying to think which one it was just before, but it uh, talks about there being weeping at night and there being joy in the morning. And here we have a similar concept. The, here the weeping is seen as sowing and the joy is seen as sheaths. So rejoicing over harvest. And then just a little bit further back in Psalm 119 and verse 162. Longest chapter of the Bible. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. You've had a war. You're the victor. You've conquered the enemy. You have all their stuff. And you get to share it out amongst yourselves. And there was great rejoicing. And again, that's, a, that's an important uh, point. It's an important uh, detail. Because here, again, darkness is enemy armies. is talking about the conquering of the armies. It's talking about there being an end to suffering and there being joy. Them accomplishing, them having a harvest, them taking the spoils of the enemy. This is a complete turnaround. So, and this is very typical of Isaiah where you have these judgment passages, and then suddenly there'll be this twist. Darkness, judgment, gloom, anguish, and then, but, the time's coming when this won't be the case. The time's coming when darkness will be light. The time is coming when there will be rejoicing, when there will be reaping, when there will be the dividing of spoils. There will be great joy. Now, next week, I'm going to do verses 4 to 7 in a lot more detail. Don't worry, I'm not finishing yet. <laughs> we're going to the New Testament. But next week, we're going to do four to seven in a much more detail. But I just want to finish off to verse seven just with a very brief overview, just so we can see the flow of context and see what happens. The rejoicing that happens and the light that has come comes for a reason. In fact, there's three reasons given in verses four through seven. And we see those reasons with the word for. If you want to be really confused, there's three fours. It makes 12, doesn't it? Three fours. There is a four in verse four. <laughs> Just to confuse you more. For the yoke of his burden. And then in verse five, for every boot of the tramping. And then in verse six, for to us a child is born. Okay? There are your three reasons that are given, and they kind of flow one after the other. So let's look at them real quick. Again, this is just a flyover, okay? For the yoke of his burden. And the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. So it's talking about the breaking of the yoke, the breaking of control and power over them. The one who has oppressed them is going to oppress them no more. There is going to be no ruler over them that is harsh. This is talking about the enemy armies, again, the darkness. The enemy armies, that their, that their control over them is going to come to an end. And it referenced the, uh, the day of Midian, which is a reference to Gideon and Judges 7. And we'll talk about that next time. The second reason given... And you can see this as a separate reason or a link. So you can see it as the joy comes because the yoke is broken. And the yoke is broken. Why is the yoke broken? For every brute of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood, 
will be burned as fuel in the fire. So in other words, all the boots that the soldiers have worn and all the garments, the, the, the garments that they've worn to, to battle that are now covered in blood, they'll all be burnt. Why will they be burnt? Because we don't need them anymore. It's talking about an end of war. Why is there no oppressor? Because there's no war anymore. War has come to an end. And again, Isaiah is, this is the thread that goes through Isaiah of peace. There is a time of peace coming. Isaiah 2 spoke about this already. Back in Isaiah 2, it talks about um, the, the glory of God and the house of God being lifted up, the house of God. Uh, verse 4, he will judge between the nations and decide disputes for many people. They will beat their, plow, uh, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. No one's going to have swords anymore. There's no war. No one's going to have spears anymore. There's no war. Looks like there's going to be farming, though, still, because there's going to make them into farming utensils. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Isaiah is very clear that there will come an end of warfare. There will come a time of peace. You people who are in great darkness, a light is coming, glory is coming, the end of warfare is coming. There will be great rejoicing because the yoke has gone. There will be great rejoicing because the, uh, the warfare has ended. And then in verse 6, why will warfare end? Why will there be peace? Because the Prince of Peace is coming. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And there is the giving of the child who will be born. In the flow of the context of Isaiah 7 and 8 and 9, it's very clear that this is the son that was prophesied back in chapter 7. That the virgin will give birth to a son. This is the one that will be the eternal king, the one that will sit on the throne of David. And this is, again, people take these verses out of context say, oh, it doesn't really mean that. But you look at the flow of Isaiah, that's exactly what he's been doing. He's been saying there is this one coming. And this child, this son, this this ruler, this one, he will be the reason for the end of war, which will be the reason for the lack of oppression, and there is a glorious time coming for these people. So, we know that's Jesus, right? We're going to look at that in a lot more detail, though, next week. Next week, we're going to do verses 4 through 7 in a lot of detail. So, what now then? Well, I want us to understand how these first three verses are used in the New Testament. And there is... There are two, one little one, but there's two key passages here. One is fairly obvious and one isn't. And we'll have a look at them both. So turn with me to Matthew. Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel and chapter 4. You might want to keep a finger or a ribbon or something in Isaiah 9 so you can see. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12, we have the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Matthew is uh, writing to Jewish people. They know their Old Testaments well. And so there are many Old Testament quotations and references. It says in verse 12, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, and in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Sound familiar? Okay. 
That's where it, we know where it's linked to. And you wouldn't have to be a rocket scientist because he's about to quote it for you. So that which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people live, dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And so we have in these verses um, a reference to Isaiah 9. And Jesus from that time began to preach, saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So one thing that Matthew is very clear about is that there was a promise in Isaiah 9. And we know what that promise was, don't we? The promise was that the darkness would be turned to light, that the gloom would become glory. Yes? There would be an end. There would be peace. There would be great rejoicing amongst the people. How is that going to happen? It's going to happen because the oppressors will be gone. The oppressors will be gone because war will be gone. And war will be gone because the Prince of Peace is coming. And so the fulfillment of this is the coming of the Prince of Peace. Now, there is something we need to see here, which is fairly obvious, but it's worth explaining and just exploring a little bit, which is this. So often in the Bible, there is the beginning of a fulfillment of Scripture that doesn't quite yet come to completion. Because the time of war in the Middle East clearly has not come to an end, right? There is no peace in the Middle East right now. The Prince of Peace, you might say, the Jew might say, clearly hasn't come because we have no peace. But the reality is, is that what Matthew is saying is he's saying the way that peace is going to come about is through the child. And the child that is given to Israel has now come. So the, the fulfilling of Isaiah 9 has now begun. It's begun because Jesus has arrived, but it won't come to completion until Jesus completes his work at the second coming. That's what we're waiting for. And so that's why he's quoting it there, and that's what's going on. And it's really a very simple and clear quotation of Scripture. He's basically taking exactly what Isaiah says, and he's saying this is fulfilled now because Jesus has withdrawn, he's gone, and he's left, and he's gone to this region. And then from that point, the bulk of Jesus' ministry was seen in that land, and it was there. And of course, while the darkness may not have fully gone, while peace on earth may not have fully come, we can certainly see that there is peace that we can have with God because the Prince of Peace has come. We can clearly see that glory was in the land because Jesus was there, and the land that was a land of contempt now becomes a land of great glory. And it's interesting, and if we turn now briefly um, to John chapter 1, As we turn over Luke to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, skimming over Luke 2, where the angel says, fear not, I bring you tidings of great joy. There's going to be this joy that's going to come when the Prince of Peace comes to the land. There's going to be great joy, like harvest coming in, like the dividing of spoils. When we come to John chapter 1 and verse 46, in this story, we're going reading back from verse 43, Next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Same region, Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, you need to know your geography to understand this. 
Bethsaida is close to Jerusalem. In the south, below Samaria. Galilee is up in the north, where Nazareth is as well. So Galilee, Nazareth, north. Then you've got that, the forbidden zone of Samaria. And then Bethsaida is down south by Jerusalem. So Philip's from the civilized part of town. And uh, Philip, found, uh, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him who Moses uh, in, the, in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said, and by the way, notice how, how right they got it and how wrong they got it. Early days. On the one hand, they've, they've said, this is who Moses spoke of. Absolutely. It's who the prophets wrote about. Absolutely. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Okay. That's confusing to me. Isn't he supposed to come from Bethlehem? And he's the son of Joseph. <laughs> and now you know that they're really not quite got it yet. They don't fully understand. But anyway, what does Nathaniel say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Listen, the Messiah is going to come from a place that's good. He's, go he's going to be, you know, Jerusalem, they'd expect him. He might come, he comes from Bethlehem, but he certainly isn't going to come from Galilee. He certainly isn't going to come from Nazareth. That's the dirty country. That's up north. That's up beyond the Samaritan zone. We don't like that place. There's nothing good there. And there was a lot of negativity that, was, uh, that existed concerning that area. And there was a lot of negativity which... which um, uh, Nathaniel expresses to us quite nicely there. And that is our background context when we then come to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Now this is something that I, um, I haven't really read anywhere that I remember anyway. I sometimes read stuff and don't remember where I read it. And I've been trying to find this, and so I'm always a bit nervous because I'm like, have I got this completely wrong? But the more I look at it, the more I think, no, 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 this is, this is, this is good. So you can be the judge anyway. Um, in John 7 and verse 40, when they heard these words, these are the words of Jesus. He's talking about living water. He stands up and talks of living water coming forth. When people heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. The prophet being a reference to the prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and would be a reference to the Messiah, which indeed he is. Others said, this is the Christ. Boom. Saying Christ means Messiah. So they, some people are knowing who he is. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Now, I, I don't want to get too distracted by all of this. I'm not teaching John. I'm just trying to show you how Isaiah is used. But this is fascinating to me, this. How often do we say, we know this is true because the Bible says boom, boom, boom. I tell you, in my life, the amount of times I've said, no, I'm 100% right on this because the Bible says, and here I am decades later saying, no, I was wrong. The Bible hasn't changed, but my understanding has. And I think there is a warning to us all to be humble. When people come and say, look, this guy cannot be the Messiah because he's from Nazareth, he's from Galilee. And the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. 
Don't believe me? I'll show you. It's in the book of Micah. Let's go turn there. Let's go and have a look. And they would be these people proving you wrong from the scripture. But he was the Messiah. The scripture was right, but he was still the Messiah. Because he'd been born in Bethlehem, but had been raised in Nazareth. He'd come from there. And so sometimes I think it's, I think this passage, I remember teaching this going through John years ago and just being really convicted that this passage is a real warning against just arrogance, just against, it's, just, it's, a, it's a little nudge to us, just to have a bit of humility and just say, okay, maybe I'm not quite right on this. Maybe I'm not right on everything. Maybe I don't have all the information. It's not that the scripture's wrong, just maybe I don't have all the information available. So I, I, I like that. I think it's a nice humbling passage in that regard. But for our purposes, I want you to notice this. They know he's come from Galilee, and that's the issue. Because the scriptures don't allow for him to come from Galilee, as far as they're concerned, but also just because Galilee's not a very nice place. They didn't hold it in high esteem. All the good stuff was around by Jerusalem area in the south. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, why did you not bring him? So they were sent to go and arrest him, but they come back empty-handed. And their answer is, no one ever spoke like this man. In other words, we went to try and arrest him, but, you know, he bamboozled us with his words. We didn't really have a response to him, you know. Um, the words of Jesus were true, and they didn't have an answer to his truth. So the Pharisees are obviously frustrated. They said, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? By the way, I often say this to you, that um, there is much irony in the Bible, deliberate irony. It comes from the prophets. The, the prophets were, were steeped in irony. But there is no book of the Bible that I'm familiar with, certainly not in the New Testament anyway, that is, has more irony than John's gospel. It is just dripping in irony. And, and this passage is a great example of that. The Pharisees are saying... Have we believed? Can you name a Pharisee who believes in Jesus and thinks Jesus is from God? I can't think of a Pharisee who would believe that. John chapter 3, Nicodemus of the Pharisees went to meet Jesus at night so that nobody would know that he went to see Jesus at night. And Nicodemus is about to speak up in a couple of verses' time. So, of course, there's this, there's this, this, this dramatic irony where we, the reader, know what's going on, but the people here in the midst of the story don't. And so... They're there saying, um, you know, have any of us believed in it? No, no, of course we haven't. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. We're the experts. We know what's what, and none of us believe it. And yet, right on cue, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before. Just in case you missed it, just in case you missed the point here, Nicodemus had gone to Jesus. Nicodemus was starting to believe in him. In fact, though Nicodemus may not have been saved when he saw Jesus in John chapter 3, he did have a belief of sorts. That's the whole point of the dialogue in chapter 3. He says, teacher, we know that you have come from God. And so there was a sense of belief. And so Nicodemus then argues, does... Uh, uh, who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And that is the key here, I think, in the whole issue of they didn't have enough information. Well, he can't be the Messiah because he comes from Galilee and the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. Did anyone stop and go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, it seems like you might have been the Messiah, but I'm confused. You come from Galilee and you're supposed to come from Bethlehem. And Jesus could just turn around and say, you know what? I was born in Bethlehem. Thanks for asking. 
We do this all the time, folks. We make judgments. We make presumptions. We, 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 know, we think we know what we don't know. We don't ask questions. And we don't give people an opportunity to respond in a manner in which we might listen to their response openly and willing to learn and understand. And the point that Nicodemus is making is that the very law of the Pharisees, their own law, requires them to do that. Their law required them to let someone have a hearing. You couldn't, you couldn't say to someone, I think you're guilty, we're going to prosecute you. That person had to have a defense. They had to be able to defend themselves. And so Nicodemus is simply saying to them, guys, we're not playing by our own rules here. And what's their response? Are you from Galilee too? That, my friends, is as clear an example as you'll find in the Bible of what we call an ad hominem. Don't want to hear the argument, attack the person. You're, you're smelly too. You, you're from that place too. Galilee was just this nasty country bumpkin kind of place. This is, this, is, this is the upper class of Jerusalem looking down their noses at the country bumpkins, the simpletons, the uneducated masses. Oh, those, those crowds don't know the law. We know the law. This is them, them in their puffed up arrogance looking down. And they turn to Nicodemus, who we know from John chapter 3 was the head of a rabbinical school and trained up other rabbis and other Pharisees. He was one of the top dogs of the Pharisees. And they say to him, oh, are you from Galilee too? It's simply an insult. Of course they know he's not from Galilee. They know where he's from. They simply say, oh, are you like that too? It's just an insult. It's an insult. It's, a, it's, a, it's an attack. It's a, it's a low blow as a way of avoiding the actual argument that's been raised. Don't ever be guilty of ad hominems. If someone says something you don't want to hear, don't call them a good-for-nothing, lazy, two-bit, this and that, and what have you, and, and some slur, some negative term. Deal with the actual issue that's been raised. If the issue's been raised, then deal with the issue. If the issue is stupid, deal with the stupid issue. But don't call the person who made the issue an idiot, because that's an ad hominem. That's not dealing with the issue. If the issue's a stupid issue, then you can respond to it. You can say, well, that's not a very good argument because this and this and this. But they don't want to hear the argument, so they simply say, are you from Galilee too? Then they say, and here's which is crucial, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. In other words, they are echoing what Nathaniel said, that no good, nothing good come from, comes from Nazareth. No good things ever come from Galilee. Well, firstly, they're wrong. <laughs> and, and, and again, Notice the irony that is now not just dripping, but free-flowing. What did they say about themselves? Verse 49, this crowd does not know the law, is accursed. The crowd doesn't know the law. Who does know the law? We do. We're the Pharisees. Who are the dumb people? They're the crowd. Who are the smart people? They're the Pharisees. Okay. And anybody, any prophet ever come? Any prophet ever come out of Galilee? No, none at all. Uh, well, Jonah, actually. In their anger, in their fury, the so-called experts of the law forgot part of the law. I don't think that's because they didn't know it as well as they were supposed to. I think it's because in their bias, they couldn't accept the plain reading of Scripture. 
And so they make idiots of themselves. Look at us, we're the experts. No prophet has ever come out of Galilee. And indeed, there is this prophet that has come out of Galilee. There is um, the prophet uh, Jonah. And you'll find that in uh, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, where that's referenced. 2 Kings 14, verse 25. Now, I'm not finished yet. One little interesting thing. In your Bibles, you, after this verse, chapter 7 ends, and we go straight into chapter 8. And chapter 8, oh, sorry, after this, you have one more verse in chapter 7, rather, and then in chapter 8, and it's this section that talks about the woman caught in adultery. The woman caught in adultery is one of the most controversial passages in Scripture, not because of what it says, but because of where it is. And I don't want to get into it in huge amounts of detail, other than to say this. Most versions have it in brackets, in smaller print, or in italics, unless you have a King James or a New King James. The reason the King James doesn't have it in italics is because the King James used the manuscript evidence that was available in the 1600s. And the reason that the New King James doesn't have it is that they refused to look at any new evidence over four centuries because they wanted to just revise the King James rather than do an entirely new version. But any other version is going to look at this, and sometimes you get some prints that don't make it different, and some do smaller print, you know, italics, brackets, what have you. But from chapter 7, verse 53, through to chapter 8 and verse 11, it is often put in brackets. And the reason is, is because this story of the woman caught in adultery was almost originally not part of John's Gospel. When I was uh, uh, hosting, in fact, I'm, I referenced this morning hosting people, didn't I? When, when I, in England about uh, 16 years ago, I was hosting uh, a scholar from America who was staying in Europe and doing some uh, sabbatical studies from his, uh, his um, seminary. And he was an expert in textual criticism, study of the Greek manuscripts and all the different readings. And... Um, we went to the British Library, we went to many different libraries, and he showed me all these manuscripts he was studying. One of the highlights of my life. I could, I could start talking about specific manuscripts and get all excited. I'll try and stay on point. We went to the British Library, and he showed me in, uh, Luke, a, a copy of Luke's Gospel that had this story in it. It had this story in it. And if you're interested in these kind of technical things, I can give you a whole bunch of books and you can look at all the evidence suggesting that, um, that this story was not originally part of John's Gospel. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that it wasn't part of John's Gospel. And we'll talk about why, in a mi- uh, why it's being kept in a minute. But the evidence tends to fall into two categories, internal and external. External evidence is the evidence not in the text itself, but in the different manuscripts. And basically, there are no manuscripts earlier than like the 5th century that have this text in John at all. There are early manuscripts that have it in Luke's Gospel and elsewhere. There are, there are various different um, manuscripts that have this story in different places. Sometimes in John, sometimes in Luke, sometimes elsewhere in John, and sometimes just not there at all. And that variation implies, and all the oldest manuscripts as well, it just wasn't there. So why would it be that this manuscript was added later? Why was this story, rather, added later to the manuscripts? And the answer is this, because it's undoubtedly true. 
And isn't it the most wonderful story? It's the most fantastic story. And it undoubtedly happened. There, there was a, a guy called uh, Papias, I think it was, who, who made it his business to write down every single story he could find about what Jesus did. Every single one. And it was apparently multiple volumes long. It was a huge work. And you know how we know about it? We've got references to it. Any copies of it anywhere? None at all. Why? Because it was really expensive to keep copies of books. And why would you keep a copy of Papias' encyclopedic stories of Jesus when you could have Matthew or Mark or Luke or John? Because those books were inspired. They were scripture. You would have those books. And so Papias wasn't copied as much, wasn't kept as much. But there were, my point is, there were numerous stories about Jesus that the gospel writers didn't keep. And because this story is just so beautiful, it's such a wonderful story, the people wanted to keep it. But no one was keeping a copy of the other stories of Jesus. They were keeping Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. So they wanted it kept, but all they're doing is keeping copies of the Gospels. So originally it was probably written as an appendix to a Gospel, and eventually it, someone wanted to put it somewhere, and, it went to find, and eventually it found a home in John's Gospel. And that's, that's the, basically the story of it. And um, my, my friend, the scholar Dan Wallace, he uh, calls it his favourite story that's not in the Bible. And I, I concur, I think that's the best way of looking at it. It's, so it's, it's certainly a true story, it's certainly a story that happened, but I wouldn't consider it to be word for word inspired in the same way as the rest of scripture. And that's why most Bibles have it in brackets right now. Now why do I tell you all of this, and why do I do this? Okay? Because as well as external evidence, there is what's called internal evidence. In other words, not looking at the different manuscripts, but looking at the passage itself. And normally the internal evidence goes along the lines of, well, the vocabulary is very different than what is typically found in John's Gospel. It's written in a different style than we find in John's Gospel and these kind of arguments. <coughs> but I haven't seen this argument, but this, this one I think is a bit of a humdinger. If we presume that that story is not in John's Gospel originally, okay, then you finish chapter 7 and verse 52. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Their point is that nothing good comes from Galilee. No prophet's going to come out of Galilee. Well, first of all, they're wrong, aren't they? Because Jonah comes from Galilee. 2 Kings 14, right? But Isaiah 9 said that this land that was in darkness, this land of Galilee, this northern realm that was in great darkness, was going to have great light. That there would be great joy and rejoicing. Why is that going to happen? Remember? Because of the oppression being gone? Why is that going to happen? Because war is going to be over? Why is that going to happen? For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. The prophet, Deuteronomy 18, referenced just a few verses earlier in chapter 7. Some said maybe he's the prophet. Some said maybe he's the Christ. Well, that's almost repetitive, because the prophet was seen as the Messiah. So why specifically reference the prophet? Because the same word, prophet, is used just a few verses later. No prophet arises from Galilee. But not only does Jonah arise from Galilee, but the greatest prophet that will ever arise. The prophet, the one after Moses, the one prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. The prophet, the greatest of all, is the Messiah. And where is he going to come from? Where is he going to bring this light to? This light is going to come to, from the prophet to the land of Galilee. 
Do you think I'm plucking at straws here? Imagine that story of the woman caught in adultery is not there. What does the very next verse say? Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles too. That's Isaiah 9 right there. And that, my friends, is, a, the, I think, the best internal argument to suggest that that story, was, uh, the woman caught in adultery, wasn't originally there. And it breaks up the flow of argument here. John is very cleverly making an argument. He gets them to reference the prophet in verse 40 of chapter 7. He gets them to reference Galilee in verse 41. <coughs> the Pharisees then go and brag about how great they are. They have the irony of saying that none of us would believe. Nicodemus shows up and then he says, well, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. And they say, are you from Galilee too? No prophet, repetition of prophet, comes from Galilee, repetition of Galilee. And then Jesus comes along, and you're thinking, well, what prophet comes from Galilee? Well, there's Jonah. Oh, yeah, prophets from Galilee? And then Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And you, the clever reader, are supposed to go, light, light from darkness. Isaiah chapter 9, that's Galilee. And what have the Pharisees done? They've done what they did so well. They've known the letter of the law, but they've missed the Messiah. They've missed the Messiah in their hatred, in their, in their sin, in their pride. They've missed the Messiah. And Jesus is the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, which was the problem in Isaiah 8, Isaiah 9, but will have the light of life. And so on he goes. And so I think that, in fact, though everybody knows the Matthew reference, I think the most important use of Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 3 in the New Testament is actually here in John 7 and 8. That Jesus is showing the Pharisees and their ignorance. And this is the irony of John. They're saying, oh, these stupid people, they, the, who are the, these stupid people? They're the ones saying, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the prophet. And the Pharisees are saying, oh, you're so stupid. We're the experts. And of course, the people were right. He was the Messiah. He was the prophet. And as Isaiah prophesied, that light came to Galilee. And the idea that nothing good could come from there was wrong because Isaiah had prophesied it long ago. Folks, I've said this so many times before and I'll probably say it so many times again. But stuff like this is not just technical stuff. This is the kind of stuff that shows you how well-written the Bible is, shows you how complete and how united the Bible is. And this is the kind of stuff that, for me at least, when I see this, I go, yes, the Bible again comes up trumps. Again, we have these prophecies of Isaiah being fulfilled. Again, it all fits together. It all is there in this pattern. You see how everything comes together. And what does it do? It instills trust in the Bible. And I think, again, it's no accident that this quoting of Isaiah 9, which instills such trust to me in the scripture, comes immediately after the end of chapter 8. Bind up the testimony. Trust the word. Trust the word of God. The law and the teaching. 
Trust it. Basil, not the chirping, not the muttering, not the, not the reading of omens, not all the, the charismatic nonsense that goes on. The word of God can be trusted. And I hope that in unpacking this for you today, in you seeing Isaiah 9 in John 7 and 8, which not too many do, I think, I hope that your trust of the Bible can be even greater again. There was darkness in that land. Darkness of years of oppression, years of warfare. And Jesus has come. And the Prince of Peace has come. And we now have peace with God. But ultimately, one day, there will be peace over all the earth when the work of Jesus is complete. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we, we thank you so much for the richness of your word. I pray that we would be those who trust your word and trust you. I pray that we would, um, we would ever more look into the details of your word, knowing, Lord, that you can be trusted. But as we look at the details and as we get into depth, may we not be like the Pharisees who knew details but missed the main point, who knew the law but missed the Messiah. Father, may we see your son in the word. And the more we see him, may we love him more and more. Amen.